This is Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series is part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. Galen Fresh was once a student in the RTF department here at the University of Texas. Weeks after she graduated, she picked up her bags and moved to Los Angeles to join the business. She's held a number of jobs, including serving as the script coordinator for the CBS series Johnny Bago. She worked as an assistant for directors, including Curtis Hansen, and she served in several roles at Castle Rock Pictures. Eventually, she joined the producer Deborah Martin Chase's production company as an executive. Today, she's the vice president of movies for Mar Vista Entertainment. They're a producer and distributor of films and series, most notably working with Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, Lifetime, and Hallmark. Fresh recalled the steps she took in working up the ranks. She gave her advice to students, and she offered her thoughts on the changing market for film and television today. She spoke on November 6, 2017, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our next installment of Media Industry Conversation Speaker Series with today's guest, Galen Fresh. Uh, and before we dig into our conversation, I want to just say some thanks, as always. Uh, first off, to my colleague, Cindy McCreary, and also to our wonderful grad support staff, Brett Siegel, Kyle Rather, Annie Major, and Britta Hansen. And thanks to the support of the RTF faculty and staff, especially our chair, Tom Schatz, and uh, Alana Wakeman for all of her assistance promoting the event, as well as to Dean Jay Bernhardt and Assistant Dean Mike Wilson. Okay, so let's dig in. Uh, I'm thrilled to welcome uh, Galen Fresh, as I mentioned, Vice President currently of Movies for Marvista Entertainment, and most importantly, an RTF graduate. Yes. Lots of hookums. Yes. Uh, and so we're going to talk today about uh, her experiences and her trajectory from her time at RTF and her varied uh, roles and responsibilities from uh, working as a script coordinator to uh, an assistant to directors such as Curtis Hansen and Catherine Bigelow, and then uh, her different experiences as a creative executive, director of development for Castle Rock, through experiences at Martin Chase Productions, mm -hmm. and up through Mar Vista. So uh, let's go ahead and dig in. Okay. And uh, first off the bat, maybe you can just uh, give us a sense of uh, how you first got the sense of being interested in doing, uh, working in the film industry. Did you think you wanted to do this while you were at RTF? What were your thoughts at the time? Well, it's kind of funny because it was a while ago. And when I got here, I didn't even know that RTF existed. So it was really very different than it is now where everyone knows film school, you know, and funny enough, I had done some stuff when I was in high school where they test you for things in my, like a mentorship, and it was advertising. So it kind of made sense that this would be the trajectory, but when I got here, I took my first RTF class, which I don't remember which one it was, like, you know, 3.0 something, and it was <laughs> gigantic, and, you know, there were so many people, and I went, oh, no, I love this. I could actually major in this. Does that really work? And so... You know, it was it, probably similar to what it is now, but faculty jury you'd go through for the production classes, and I just loved it, and there was no doubt that this is what I wanted to do. The question is, how? You know, how do you 
how do you get a job in this when you get yeah, out? So, yeah. yeah. Well, and, you, and I know that when we talked before, you mm -hmm. said you didn't really have much of a network or connections or anything like that, and you just moved out to L.A.? I graduated, and I had actually done, um, funny enough, the summer before, there was no UT uh, semester in LA or anything like that, which I think is great if you guys ever get a chance to do that, because you at least get to experience the city, too, and what it's really like and the whole thing. So, um, But there was a workshop, and they were advertised up in the bulletin boards, and so I went to LA for a week on this media workshop and stayed at UCLA, and they had guest speakers come in who were working in the business and they took us to tapings and it was, you know, we got advice from people who were working for UCLA and, you know, getting jobs, internships, that kind of thing. And so I came back to my senior year and I was convinced that I was going to LA. Of course, my parents were a little like, yeah, whatever, and mm. they really wanted me to go any place but LA. So um, I didn't listen to them. <laughs> But yeah, I really just made the decision. I had a lot of people telling me that I couldn't work there. There are unions, you can't work on crews, you can't, and it was like, go into news broadcasting, go into this, go into that, and it was, that was not what I wanted to do. So my college roommate's sister-in-law had a friend who was working on a TV series, and she just said, talk to her on the phone. I talked to her on the phone, and she told me how she got a job, and she said, that's not true. You can go get an assistant job. She's like, I got an assistant to a writer on a TV show, and I just kept working my way up until I became a writer. And she didn't help me get a job, but she encouraged me and told me that this could be done. And I remember walking into my parents' bedroom and saying, I just bought a round trip ticket to Los Angeles. I'm gonna be there for two weeks. I'm going to find a place to live and scope everything out, and then I'm gonna come back and get all my stuff and move there. And my mom was like, okay. And my stepdad was thought I was crazy, so, but he knew better. And. Um, <laughs> Long story short, I, had, I stayed with a family friend who I'd met at a wedding when I was 13. She let me stay on her couch. I rented a car. I was staying in her apartment, and she had no TV. No, so I started answering ads. Like in the, At the time, there was a blind ad in The Hollywood Reporter. There were a couple of ads, and it was for a, TV, a receptionist for a TV company. I'd had one interview set up. I called. It was like Stephen Cannell's company. It was another thing, a receptionist. And it's like, this will get my foot in the door, and I need to get a job. And... I happened to talk to the person who was hiring because I called right before nine and she answered the phone. And she kind of pre-interviewed me. I didn't even know I was being pre-interviewed. And she said, why don't you come in at 11 o'clock? And I said, okay, but what kind of company is this? So that was like a horror. Because I had done internships. I was from Dallas and I'd worked at a you know commercial production company and all that. So I wasn't, it just, I knew I wasn't gonna, didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And I knew of friends who'd moved to LA and they're like, well, I'm peeing on commercials for $100 a day. I'm like, I don't want to pee on commercials. You know? <laughs> so they said, we're a television production company. We do made-for-TV movies and series. And um, Bob Papazian won the Emmy last year for Inherit the Wind. And I said, see you at 11 o'clock. And <laughs> I went in, and I actually got the job. And they hired me on the spot because they had kind of been in this process of trying to get people in the door, and the guys wanted to have a say in it. And so the head of the company interrupted his assistant, who was interviewing me, and the guy that I saw on the Emmys the year before, and she literally walked out of the room and said, um, Bob's going to come in and talk to you for five minutes. And I was like, oh, OK. I was 21. Like, he came in. I don't remember what the conversation was. We laugh now. And he went, I guess he said, if you want to hire this person, go ahead. And so they hired me. And I was there in different capacities for three and a half years working on. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Made for TV movies. But I worked my way up 
to the executive producer's assistant. I talked to every person who came in that door. Emmy-winning directors would be sitting at the desk next to me, and I'd say, or sitting on the couch, and I'd be like, hi, and I'd just start talking. And, you know, it helps to be a friendly Southerner, and people <laughs> really do like it. And if you're smart and you ask smart questions and you're generally, genuinely interested in what people have to say, they say, well, come to the set and visit. And, you know, and, and I took as much advantage as I could, but all on my own time, like after work. It was never like, hey, can I have the afternoon off to go to set? It was like, oh, they're shooting at night. I'm going to go out. And, um, and then, yeah, and then I literally got, they downsized. I started reading scripts. I was a set PA on movies of theirs. And then I got the script coordinator job on Johnny Bago through them. So I kept a good relationship through that company and then went on to Johnny Bago working with people like Bob Zemeckis and Frank Marshall and Peter wow. Seaman and Jeff Price. And it was like a different world but it was connected to the same company, so. So I'm curious, these days, when you're hiring people, like, mm -hmm. what kinds of things do you look for? And also, like, how do you find people or... Well, at Marvista, it's a little different. We do yeah. advertise, but it's still word of mouth. Like, if I need an assistant or if we need, you know, we will ask friends. And Marvista has quite a process, though, that you have to go through. But um, my assistant who I hired when I first got there is, uh, we've now promoted, and this is for everybody. <laughs> I would interview these people, and they'd sit at the desk, and they'd talk to me like this, and, and I'm, that's not the kind of boss I am. That's not the, I need somebody that I can go, oh my God, I'm having the worst day, you know? And, and they'd be like, um, yeah, uh, no, and I, I'm, and I go, oh my God, and I'm, I'm really nice, but I'm also, I have high standards. Um, and I just went, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> like that. And my assistant, Crystal, was kind of that fiery, like, yeah, and she still calls me boss lady. I'm like, stop calling me <laughs> boss lady. She'll be like, hey, boss lady. What do you but she had a personality. She was interested. She would talk to me about, hey, I saw this movie this weekend. And I love, when you're an assistant, that's an important job in Hollywood. Like, people don't tell you enough, but you're that person's eyes and ears, tentacles out into the world. And so... I like assistants who tell me what TV shows they're watching or what movies they saw or, hey, I read this great script that you should check out this writer. So it's all about being proactive. And also, attitude is so important. I can't stress enough that I need somebody who has a good attitude and at least feels like they want to be there that day. Yeah. You know, it's important. That's helpful. Uh, back to Johnny Bago. Yeah. So what did you do as a script coordinator? What were your responsibilities? I was the assistant to the two executive producers who wrote Roger Rabbit and Doc Hollywood and a number of things since. They'd never done TV. I had. And they were, it was an eight-episode show. Um, Bob Zemeckis directed the pilot and was a producer. Frank Marshall was a producer. Steve Starkey, who works with Bob, was kind of post. But Peter and Jeff were running the show. And so they were rewriting the episodes. They were casting the episodes. They were on set. So as a script coordinator, I did all the script revisions with them and for them, marked them and, and got them out. And I don't even know if script coordinator jobs exist anymore, but it was also a way for them to make sure that I got a credit because I was there with them in every aspect of everything. So I was on set with them when it was pouring down rain and we were having to revise scripts and do things. And we were there... Often we'd wrap at 7 or 8 at night, and we were in the trailer, and the Teamsters would lock us in the trailer because we were still working on the script 
revisions for the next day. So it was up to me, which is very important, to make sure that those revisions are marked and that they're out and that they're correct. And it sounds silly, but it's very important. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. They were great guys to work with. And um, they, like I said, they would look to me sometimes. And as a joke, one of the episodes they were told by physical production, you can't do a mine cave in. That's too expensive. You can't, we can't afford that. And they're all upset. And there are these feature guys. And they're like, what are we going to do? We can't do my." I go, all right, well, I went to film school. Here's what you do. Shake the camera and throw some dirt. It's the same thing. <laughs> throw some dirt in front of the lens, shake the camera. Is that going to work? And they went, that works. And I was like, so we do a mine cave in. And, you know, because it's, it's something that I still use even now as a producer on these low-budget TV movies. You've got to bob and weave, and you've got to figure out ways to get things done instead of saying, no, we can't. It's more like, how can we? Right. So, and that, to that, this day, they still, they'd look at me and I was very much like, <laughs> they put an actress in something, I'm like, she can't wear that. The network is not. The other thing I did, I was the standards and practices contra uh, contact for CBS, which was also very interesting because I'm really dating myself, but that's when people still wore pagers. And we would be turning these script revisions into the network, the most conservative network still. <laughs> and this was Bob Zemeckis and these guys who were wanting to be funny and wanting this to be a 10 o'clock show. And it was an, they were looking at it as an 8 o'clock show. And so they I would get pages, 911, from the standards and practices person at CBS. And I'd have to go call her. And she'd say, you can't shoot that scene. You can't shoot that scene. And I'd be like, too late. <laughs> Did it, and uh, so we we uh, we got through it. But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> that is fun. So this is probably what, early mid nineties. Early nineties, probably. Yeah, ninety, probably two ish. Um, and funny enough, they were that show ended. So at that point, I was freelance, and they were feature guys. They had a deal at Universal, and this was not the time that TV is, is now. And they kept saying. We're going to get you out of television. <laughs> I was like, I don't care. I just need a job. And um, through them, but not directly, they had a friend, and he was doing a movie for Universal, and it happened to be at Curtis Hansen. And he called their office, and they had a permanent assistant. And he said, hey, I'm doing a movie for Universal, and we have this mutual friend, and you guys have a deal. Um, do you know anyone? Because I want my own assistant. I don't want to hire someone through Universal. I had just finished the job. My friend called me and she said, oh my god, I just you know, hooked you up with this director. We had to call the DGA to get his credits, because it wasn't, you couldn't look him up. And his credits were <laughs> Bad Influence and Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And we were like, OK, he's legit, great. You know, I, and, and I had to drive to Universal on a Friday night for an interview. And we had a great meeting. And then he said, well, we just got Meryl Streep for the lead. And I swear I went. OK. <laughs> like, so do you think this would be something you're interested in? I was like, yeah, sure, maybe. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in that situation, too, he hired me just to be in LA, because it's very expensive to take people on location. And um, I learned the ways you make yourself indispensable to someone. And he had stacks of scripts all over his home office in his garage. And I looked at the scripts, and I said, what are these? And he goes, oh, I think I'm supposed to be reading them. And I said, do you want me to read them for you? Because I had done script coverage. So we were in a, and I said, 
I'm happy to read and I'll like do a little coverage. And he went, oh, you will? And I said, sure. So after about a week to two weeks, he one day said to me, so do you like being on set? You've had set experience. And I said, I love being on set. I said, but I'm not going to just follow you around and give you water and get you food. Like that's not the kind of assistant that I am. But And so he figured out how to get me on location, and we went to Montana and Oregon for four and a half months, working six days a week. This is the River Wild, right? River Wild, climbing rocks, riding in helicopters, riding in jet boats, and it was an amazing experience overall. So I had a lot of fun. And he was honestly one of the really amazing people I learned a lot from. He was an incredibly talented, I still can't believe he's gone, but incredibly talented person. Um, came from a writing background, was very just, you know, collaborative and liked, you know, liked to involve you. And But we'd say things to me like, oh, well, why don't you go? I had to go on a scout with them because Carrie Fisher was doing the rewrites and she wrote on yellow legal pads and she was faxing them. So <laughs> I was doing the script revisions. And he'd say, okay, you saw that location, so just write up something in the script about the ending. I'm like, I can't do that. And, I, and he went, <laughs> I know, but just just do a placeholder, and I was like, all right, Curtis. So, um, but that was honestly a, six days a week. Being on that movie it was really one of my highlight experiences for sure. Meryl Streep, Kevin Bacon, David Strathairn, John C. Riley before he was John C. Riley. So um, it was great, and they're great people to work with. That's fun. Um, I'm going to pivot just to get okay. into the executive discussion a little bit. Like, at what point did you figure out, or did you have a sense of like, this is the trajectory I want to take? And how did you move into Castle Rock was sort of the big yeah. pivot to the executive? Well, there is a point, and you know, I say my experience is very varied in a good way. You hope that you can use it all, and you some people go that executive only trajectory, and you get to a point, and you may be even a producer, but you don't have any production experience. So it's, it's really an interesting, but I, at a certain point, too, got tired of freelance jobs, but there was a little bit of, maybe I should, and then really right after Curtis, before I went to work for Catherine, I was reading scripts for him, and agents started saying to me, you know, you should think about being an executive. And I was like, maybe, I don't know. And, and honestly, part of it was I needed a job, so sometimes you can't wait that long for how long executive jobs take. But I went and interviewed, and, and there were some interesting positions. But I finally, when I went to Castle Rock, I was still an assistant, but I was working for the president of the company. And it was a great time. And talk about another place that I had access to everything from by the way, A-list writers, I mean, as, as high as it gets, like to the William Goldmans of the world, and you know, and to seeing a movie through the international release at a company who was really, you know, handling all of it. And so Martin Schaefer was my boss, and he was a really great, great guy who you could always ask a question, and you figured out when you could ask a question, because you'd see him throwing a baseball or doing whatever he'd be doing. Like, you have to to kind of pick and choose when you know that someone's not too busy. and But it was great. And I like worked with all these amazing people and who were very accessible. It was a great company. And it was a very different time in the feature business. We did the Christopher Guest movies. We did The Green Mile. We did Miss Congeniality, um, Proof of Life. They were still making movies at a certain budget level that did not have to be $100 million above or about a superhero. So it was a really great time. And 
you know, we kind of look at it, we call it back in the day. You know, it was like there was there was a lot of money for these movies. So what was the time frame? This was like mid-late 90s? Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I'm just sort of trying to track where the movie industry like, went. Um, <laughs> what did I figure out? Maybe like 96 and 90s. I think it was late 96, but I was there for eight and a half years. And so that was a situation too where even though I didn't have the title promotion, I would read, if a draft of a script would come in, and assistant jobs are busy, but in my opinion, you can always find time to read, and you're answering phones and scheduling and, and whatever. I was at a point where I could handle all that. So a draft would come in, the Green Mile, and I'd say, can I read this copy? And they'd say, sure. And I'd be finished it before they would, because they were busy. I'm sitting at my desk, and Martin would come to me and go, what do you think? And at certain days, we would have a contest. He'd come out and he'd go, what page are you on? I was like, no, you finish, you know? So, and it got, he would always ask my opinion. And so, it, you know, we, he knew me. He knew that I'd worked for these directors. He knew I had this experience. So it got to the point where I'm going to leave if you don't promote me. So, but he didn't want me to leave. And he, at a certain point, was, you know, sometimes there's no space. So he gave me a promotion, a title promotion where I was still his assistant. And then the company downsized. When I started there, there were 120 people. When I left, there were 13. And so they kept downsizing because of the state of the feature business and a number of other reasons. The company had sold out to Time Warner and then Warner brought, it was a long story, but so they promoted me to director of development and that was when it was like, oh, this is your job to do this and you now have your own assistant. And it's actually a weird thing to go from like, oh, and then you go, what do I do all day? So it's, um, <laughs> yeah, so how did you pivot and like what, what did you do as director of development? Really, um, that was also but a time in the business where there were spec scripts that went out all the time. So Tuesday night, you did not make any plans. You were home on your couch reading eight to 10 scripts. And and I say that, and you didn't read the whole thing, but you you part of your job was to be social and know all those agents and managers and call them. You'd be on these tracking boards where they'd say, you know, so-and-so is going out with an action script, and it's by this, that, da, da, da. And you'd call and go, hey, can I have that script? And Castle Rock, we were lucky we were buyers, so we didn't have to submit to a studio. We had our own money to buy. So they would give me anything because they were wanting to sell. So, but a lot of my job, joking, breakfast, lunches, dinners, um, drinks, you'd go to Sundance, you'd go to parties. And I have to tell you, there's part of that me that goes, oh, I'm so glad that part is over. It sounds like fun, and it is fun at a certain point in your life, but it was all about being visible. And you also took general meetings with writers all the time. Like you could read a writer's spec script and either pass on it, but if you liked it, part of the, the job was, would you meet with this writer? So you would meet with them. And so my day was scheduled with hour-long meetings with writers where you basically just sat and chatted and decided if you vibed, if you had the same taste, and oh, okay, well maybe we'll work on something together in the future. Oh, bring me this pitch, or let's work on this. And it was also gathering information, so like a lot of list. So Castle Rock wasn't so much like a studio in the big, but they'd say, we need a writer to rewrite this. We need a comedy writer. And we need to spend within this range. Who do you like? So it was up to me to go and make a list of all these writers that maybe I had met or that agents had pitched to me, and even if I hadn't met them, or who were the hot people in town, and I'd make a list. I'd do notes on scripts. That, you know, so it was really, it was development, you know, you really, and, and you used it. And one of my friends, you know, we talked about Castle Rock didn't buy a lot outside. They developed a lot from within. 
had great relationships with filmmakers, which was amazing. And but you know, my friend, we said this is also you working for yourself. Like you're gaining all this knowledge too to take wherever you right. go next. But I developed a lot of relationships, and I cold called. I cold I cold called a lot of agents and managers and people that saying. I'm newly promoted to director of development. I was a C, but now I'm free. This is my only job. Can we meet? And a lot of it is, you know, going out and getting people to like you. <laughs> and, you know, they can do business with you. And funny enough, I still have those relationships, and we're all at different levels. And it's in some ways, it's like college. Like you sit down with everyone. You're like, God, can you believe? Like, 15 years ago, we were all going to Sundance, and oh, thank God. I <laughs> you know, no offense, but it was like, oh, we saw 15 movies in, you know, four days and, you know, but now I'm a little more selective about what I do on a daily basis. So. Yeah. Well, maybe let's pivot now to the present day yes. uh, and kind of hear, you know, what do you, what do you do now as vice president uh, for movies? Like how, how more, much more expansive or different are your responsibilities? Well, it's very different. And with Deborah Martin Chase, it went into that where I was actually producing. And so at Mar Vista, we are very specific. We're a production and distribution company and we have a, a few different departments like this indie department that does smaller movies. I am tasked to do network movies. So right now, made for TV movies. I'm also working on a few series, but movies are what I'm focused on. So we do a lot for Hallmark. We do Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, um, Lifetime if possible, depending on what they're doing. But all of those are directed specifically. We sell to the network. I sell to the network. And then we develop with them. They buy it from us. Then we develop with them and go through the entire process to the end with a network. So with our like indie department, they'll make movies at a much lower budget, but they have some more autonomy. And But when I say much lower budget, a much lower budget. And, and mine aren't huge either, but um, but on a daily basis, it's, it's development through producing post-production. Like today, the credit block came for the movie that I have in coming out in December and I'm looking at the credit block going, okay, whose names are spelled correctly and is this the right position? And so it's really a little bit of everything. So so are you scouting projects or commissioning projects? Like how does that figure in? So um, we say, we were talking maybe you doing one all the way through. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you like, there's yeah, that'd be great. the swap that I did for the Disney Channel last year. So when I first got to Mar Vista, I was calling agents and managers and saying, hey, I'm here now. This is what I'm doing. And this um, agent who had sent me the book Lemonade Mouth when I was with Deborah Chase said, hey, I have a kid's book for you. So I read the book, and I absolutely loved it. And I called her, and I said, I'd like to submit this to Disney Channel and Nickelodeon. So Nickelodeon passed on concept. They were like, we have some, and it's a boy-girl body swap. Disney Channel got the book, read it, and said, we like this and we want to buy this from you guys. So then that deal process starts. So Mar Vista and Disney Channel make a deal to option the book. So that goes on for a little while where I just kind of sit back until the agent calls me and goes, this deal's not going to make because, you know, you're like, oh. <laughs> so we made the deal. Then we start to, okay, well, we got to find writers to adapt this. So what I do is think of who out there do we like and in some situations, you'll take in two, to, two or three writers. We decided we would find two. So I give the book to a couple writers who I think are right for it. They come back to me and tell me if they like it. And then usually what they do is develop a take. 
because there were things in it already that we discussed with Disney, like, well, this can't happen. We don't want her to play soccer because when a boy and girl switch roles, it's easy, boys play soccer too. You know, there are certain things we wanna, and this has a lot of heart and emotion, and it has some comedy, but we need to up the comedy. So those are all the things you start looking for in a writer. So we took, uh, developed two takes, took them in, and we ended up going with one team over another writer who was also great, and I ended up hiring for another project. So then you start working on the script, and you go through an outline stage. You look at it first, then you, you know, have some tweaks, then you give it to whatever network you're working with, and then they look at it and they give their responses and you work with the writer to get it to where they wanna go. And then ideally they say, go to draft. So then they start working on it and they start developing the draft. So we did that, and at, this, at that time I was doing other movies while the writers were writing. And um, we got a draft that we started getting close and the process is different there. It takes a while and it's a lot of it's about casting and the whole thing and it was kind of like, where are we gonna shoot this? How do we get the budget to a certain level? And then Disney Channel started talking about casting. Okay, here are the few actors that we like. So we went through this kind of process where they actually make their actors audition and it was actually a very difficult project because a boy and girl are switching bodies so then they have to play each other and they have to play the masculine and the feminine and. Um, so it was, a, it was a fun process. So we, we finally, then we started, cast was first, I believe, and then we started talking about directors. So we're the ones who also come up with a list of directors in conjunction with your network. It's like, but you give suggestions and you have many phone calls where you go through giant lists and this person would be right, but maybe, eh, well we had, eh, da, 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 you know, and you go back and forth and figure that out. And we came up with a wonderful director, and then we um, went to Toronto and started prepping. And I was actually finishing a movie in Vancouver, so I missed kind of the very first week. Then I got there. Even before that, we start looking at hiring key crew. Um, you, it depends on the movie and how fast, but you try to at least get your director or, and yourself on the phone with people so they can tell you production designer, editor, um, costumes, director of photography, everyone, you know, make sure everyone's on the same page. And then, usually the first thing I step foot into a, um, lately Toronto or Vancouver, and I'm in a scouting van. So, I'm location scouting. So we're, I mean, at this point I do everything on the production as a producer. So scouting, we start having meetings with all the key crew, we start casting the other roles, so it's a, it's a whirlwind, pre-production is, and then at the same time you're usually still doing script revisions, mostly for production purposes or whatever, and you're tailoring locations. And um, So we did all that, and then we shot for five weeks, I can't remember now, probably five weeks. And then we had a long post process, and there's VizFX and music, and you go through the cuts with the network where you, as, you view the director's cut, you give your notes, they do that. Then you turn in your producer's cut to the studio and you go through and it's a, so that movie wrapped in May and it aired in October. So pretty much through August, September was quite a, a you know, grind on that movie. So Are you um, doing any testing with audiences? We or? didn't do any testing with audiences. And so in television they don't normally do, I've done that in features for sure and believe me it's really frustrating. But, um, <laughs> but not in television, you don't even have the lead time, but I think that 
they do a lot of market research, especially like Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, Hallmark, all those places. And like, you know, Hallmark will say things to us now like, oh, well, we hear from our audiences that they like this or they don't like that. And you're like, okay, you know, so um, yeah, so that's, that's that process. So how much do you feel like you have a sense of what you need to do for Hallmark versus what you need to do for Disney? And how do, you know, how would you recommend that others would get that? Well, honestly, it's part of it's watching you know, watching the movies. And I have so many, because Hallmark is really on the rise and doing, you know, 100 movies a year. And I said, I have so many. I have a writer, I think, just emailed me yesterday saying, I've been watching a bunch of Hallmark movies. I want to write one and direct one. How do we do this? So, but it's, it's watching and seeing. And I know from doing, I think I've done five for Hallmark, and I'm in development on five right now. So I know a lot, yeah. and I know certain things where they'll say, you know, this movie needs to be for your eight-year-old niece needs to be able to watch it with your 80-year-old grandmother. So, and I know the pitfalls, having done this many now, they like this, they don't like that, they don't, and they'll tell you, and you have relationships, though. You have relationships with these executives, and besides even going to lunch or drink, you, you call each other every once in a while, and you just say, hey, what's going on? What are you guys, what are you guys looking for right now? Like, what's the... What's the new thing that Disney Channel's looking for? You know, oh, we need a musical for this. Or Nickelodeon, what do you, you know, and, and they're like, well, ours are, you know, more gag-heavy comedy. But you're always hitting a moving target. It's never like you read one and you go, this is perfect. You go, oh, this might work. And then you may send it to them and they say, it does work. We have something exactly like that already. <laughs> but you're close. You know, I get that a lot because they're like, you're right on target. I'm like, all right, well, you know. So <laughs> part of my job is to sell and to... I'm constantly reading scripts and, and you know hearing pitches. With Hallmark, they buy on concept, so I try to have my relationship with my writers and tell them these are the buckets that they're looking for, and I have them send me little paragraphs, and I'll pick one or two that I like and submit those to the executives there, and they will you know, buy them based on concept. And usually, we also develop a trust that they know, oh, you have good taste in writers, so if you tell me that this writer is good for Hallmark, I will trust you, you know? So, um, but a lot of your job is it's relationships and calling and learning and you're always taking all the information that you have and using it for the next, for the next thing. Does Marvista keep any rights of the, the projects they develop or how does that work in yes. terms so of? Yes, we're, so we're different because we are a distribution company in addition to a production company. So we have international distribution rights for most of the movies that we do. So like with, say, it, it, all of them are a little bit different, like Hallmark, and we do those Canadian content. So we shoot in Canada with Canadian producers, but then we often have the international rights to fill our pipeline. Disney Channel or Nickelodeon are a little bit different. We co-finance the movie, and we get a certain amount of rights where they keep a certain amount. And they tend to keep more because, but then we'll get a window maybe later, or we'll get the rights for streaming and you know like I the swap I'm told is doing really well on iTunes I'm like okay great so that's something that we control and honestly I stay out of that like my I like to really focus on making the projects and I'm really happy when I hear that they're doing well and and all that but I'm like oh what rights do we have in this one okay great you know cuz yeah. I'm on to the next I'm on to the next thing you know so um 
you, but I do, I love every one of the movies that I make and I feel very close to them, but you have to let them go. It's like letting your child into the, into the world and then starting on the next one. So how many projects do you have at various stages of development at it any depends. given time? Like I was, I was counting right now. I think I have five in different stages of development and that's, we've turned in two outlines we're waiting for notes on. I'm to draft on two. One of the drafts just came in. We're in a rewrite on another one. And I feel like I'm missing one more. And then um, Nickelodeon, the Nickelodeon movie Tiny Christmas is coming out in December. So we're actually finished that one. That one was a, it's like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids at Christmas. So we shot it, but it was a huge VisFX movie. It had over 400 VisFX shots. So once the movie was actually edited and locked, the VisFX process was a whole other, um, it was like starting all over again in a way. And it was really great and really interesting. Um, and that was delivered a few weeks ago and now we're into, it airs in December and it's like we have a premiere in three weeks, which sounds silly, but I, that's also a part of my job is making sure that the right people who were involved in the movie are invited to the premiere and dealing with, and, and that's the fun part, but um, so that one will be released in a few weeks, but we'll start seeing like TV spots that the network will cut and we'll start paying attention to the marketing and social media. And um, so that's kind of, that's kind of fun. So. so I'm curious, you've mentioned or alluded to how the feature film business is fraught these days, but you are making features of a sort. Well, TV movies. Right. Yeah, and so, so I'm are. curious if you can sort of make the distinctions of like, maybe explain to our students what they think of the feature land, what you think of the feature landscape recommendations and how you see TV movies as distinct. Well, it's funny. We were talking a little bit. The feature landscape is right now, it's like the really low budget indie or the giant comic book type movies. There's not a lot of in between if you look and see. Now, it gets to be a little more this time of year for award season. But even then, so many of those movies are made for, I think Moonlight was made for what, like $5 million or something. La La Land was definitely made for more than that. But those are one-offs, and they're often made just because they know this could be an Oscar contender. Or the right actor or actress, like Julia Roberts in the movie, what's it called, Wonder, that's coming out? And I, I call it The Mask for a New Generation. But it's like, it's <laughs> Julia Roberts. So Julia Roberts reads a wonderful script and goes, I want to make this movie. And... It gets made, but probably still not for a lot of money, you know? So the feature landscape is just, it's, it's changed a lot in television and, you know, with the DVD market going away and now it's streaming, but there's not as much money there. And it's just, it's changed drastically. And I watched it change um, in my previous job, going from Castle Rock to a company that, you know, was based at Disney and did female-driven projects you constantly got lower budgets and it was just sort of like, oh, okay, well, you know, and it, every time a movie like Bad Moms or Bridesmaids comes out, that's great, but it still doesn't move the needle that much. It's like, okay, we'll make another Bad Moms, you know, okay, okay, great, but, or, uh, you know, Girls Trip or something, but it's still, the, the amount they spend on advertising is like the same amount as the movie. So they are they have to make a certain amount of money and it just doesn't happen the same. And, and, it, and the international is a huge component. So if a movie's not gonna make as much or more internationally as it would make here, then they don't make it. And yeah. we had a situation with Just Right that we did with Queen Latifah and that movie was sold to Disney 
off of a pitch after um, bringing down the house. So they were like, Queen Latifah, we want to make a movie with Queen Latifah. So then it was developed and it was in a good you know, place. And they're like, yeah, you know. And, and so we went through this process of trying to make it there. And the executives who were at Disney were passionate about it and tried really hard and you know, said, we want to make this and this is why. And you know, they're the ones who have to go in and fight at the studio. And the person at the time said, if you can't guarantee me pretty woman numbers, I'm not <laughs> going to spend this money. Well, nobody can guarantee pretty woman numbers. I mean, nobody can guarantee any numbers. Mm -hmm. So we ended up making it at Fox Searchlight for a much lower budget. And we made it, and the movie turned out well. Did it make Pretty Woman numbers? It did not. Um, <laughs> but people really liked the movie, so I, that's that's the best that I can do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's really, you know, we're we're lucky to get to make them and have them turn out well. And there's a certain point that it breaks your heart if they don't do what you want them. And but then people see them on TV or DVD and tell you how much they love them, and you go, Oh, I wish you would have paid to go see. Them. <laughs> but I always tell people it's like with. Women's movies or, you know, people say go those two weekends because if you want to have more made, it's all about money. Money is what's driving it. And so, you know, if a movie makes money, then they go, oh, well, maybe we can make another one like this. But if people wait and watch it on streaming or on TV, that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. So I'm curious, what else is, what's sort of the size and scope of Mar Vista? Like what other activities are they involved in? We have a, we do series and um, made for TV movies. So we had um, a show on BET this year called Rebel that John Singleton was a producer on. And that was, you know, a great experience. We have something where actually, gosh, we start shooting in a couple weeks for uh, Netflix called Best Worst Weekend Ever. And um, that's kind of like, a hangover type with kids. We, as far as the series, yeah, everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> young kids, not high school. I mean, I'm not college students. But um, so we, like I said, we have this indie arm that does movies that are distributed internationally, and they sometimes end up on networks, but they're acquired by networks. So they'll end up on like Lifetime Movie Network or Up or Ion. So those are done at one budget level. Um, we have a, an initiative that a few of my colleagues are working on right now with Elijah Wood's company, SpectreVision, um, that are doing some really kind of quirky indie, I think the new one is called like Corpse Tub or something, but they had one called Bitch this year that's actually was released in theaters this weekend, and that was made very much on a micro budget. And so these are festival plays, and this is like us taking swings at you know, trying to crack that world and seeing if we can keep making more of these because, like I said, the future business is very difficult. So even getting distribution is a great thing. So yeah. it's really, and I have colleagues who are working on those. We, our company is now, I can't remember, maybe about 60 people. Okay. And so there are those of us who do the creative and then we have, you know, marketing, we have distribution, we have you know, people doing all different things. We have post-production. We're now doing physical production. We have our own. So we are a mini studio, and we keep growing and, you know, keep making more stuff. So it's, yeah. it's a different place to be, but as the business evolves, you want to go someplace that is actually making stuff. And I've had for a long time friends say to me, oh, my gosh, you're, you're making movies. Like you're, and you're always in production, and the last three years, three years, three and a half, I've made two to three movies a year. So um, it's fun. That's the goal. The goal is to get them made. So. <laughs>
true. So I know that we had talked earlier about advice that, uh, and I thought I thought it was great. Sort of uh, both what type of feedback. Uh, people who want to be creative executives mm -hmm. should give, mm -hmm. and also like how writers should. That was the one you were like, yeah. I wish you would say. Yeah, we have to remember like that. that. <laughs> that is. Um, it's funny because we were talking a little bit, and I think I'm, I'm going, I, what I do is like I work with writers all the time and directors, and it's a very collaborative process. And I think what I was telling you is that yeah. point from, if you're a writer and you're in your room by yourself and you are writing that script, or maybe you're working with a partner, and you, it's yours, and you're like, this is the best script ever, and how great is it? And then you start giving it to your friends, and they start reading it, and they're giving you notes. And um, one thing I always say, learn how to take notes. And you don't have to always agree with them, but you have to learn how to be able to take them. It's like criticism. And you, So then, say, you get an agent or a manager off of the script. They might give you some notes, or they might go, this is great. We're going to send it out. Then they send it to people like me, and we read it, and maybe we buy it, which is great. We're like, we're going to make this. And then you get to the process where you're told you have to rewrite it completely. And you know, so it's very collaborative. But I think, and I do believe, I appreciate creative people, and I know what you guys do. And I, as a producer, feel the same way. I don't like when people criticize a cut that I did or one of my movies. Really don't criticize one of my movies after it's done, because it really upsets me. You know, like, you know, you really could have done that better. And you're like, really? <laughs> um, but so I get it. So one of the things that I was saying I do in the style of working with writers is trying to not be critical and saying, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. It's more like, how do I bring out the best in this project? And so I like to ask questions like, well, what do you think is this character's goal? And I've had writers get defensive with me. It's there. That's the, that's the goal. And I go, OK, that's great that that's the goal. But that's not what I saw there. So let's figure out how we can make that come forward. And I was saying, I have had other producers I work with say, well, why are you asking questions? Because what's the answer to the question? I go, no, no, I don't know the answer to the question. So the writer, if the writer knows the answer to the question, I want them to answer it. And then we can figure out. And, and maybe I don't like it either. I want to go, well, maybe that's not the way we should go. Because we're all, but we're all collaborating, and there's no absolute, and I'll quote William Goldman, nobody knows anything. It's true. No, there are no absolutes in this business that we were. We can all see the same movie, and some of you are going to love it, and some of you are going to hate it. And like, there's a movie I saw this year, I'm not going to name because it's a podcast, but um, that I really couldn't stand. And I have a feeling it's going to get nominated for some Oscars because of who the person is and the whole thing, and I'm like... It's going to make me so mad. But it's not a well-made movie or a well-told story. But yet, we all, you know, we all like different things. But if you're working for me and we're working for a network, I usually am going to execute this in a way that if we're making a Hallmark movie, this is what we have to do for Hallmark. If we're making a Disney Channel movie, this is what we have to do. Like this series project that I'm working on that's a spec script is really dark. And I love it because I go, I can't just make Hallmark movies or Disney Channel or Nickelodeon movies all the time because I'm a creative person. I like other things besides that. And I watch all different kind of shows. And you know, my friend and I joke, it's like we work in Hallmark world. And I'm like, I still watch Law & Order SVU for some reason. Like, that's one of my favorite shows. <laughs> so it's like we all liked it because people say, oh, well, you like girl movies and you like kid movies. And I go, yes, but 
I don't go home and watch a bunch of Hallmark movies because I'm making a bunch of Hallmark movies. And I will watch them because my friends work on them and I wanna see what, you know, what they are. But I, you know, you, it's all diverse and I have different taste. But the company I'm working for, I'm, t I'm tasked to do certain types of movies, so those are the ones I look for. Series, it's a little more wide open, but I say that to people now. I go, don't send me kids series and don't send me something really girly or hallmarky because that's what I'm doing on the you know movie side. Now my colleagues, they're doing those too and you can send those to them because they can focus on that. But series are kind of an initiative for me so I wanna do things that, they still have to be something I can ideally sell, but they have to be something that I really fall in love with and um, very character driven, flawed characters, um, don't always have to have a happy ending like Hallmark. You know what I mean? So that, that's a little more real in my taste range. But I like doing other, the Hallmark I call Pretty People Falling in Love. And people like those movies because nobody's making romantic comedies now. And so that's a really underserved audience. And if you look, Hallmark is one of the networks, the two networks, and they're starting a third, that are growing. Obviously, people want to see those kind of movies. So. I'm happy to be making them. I mean, it, like I said, they're fun. I get to work with a lot of fun actors and directors and tell really nice stories and, you know. Same so thing have you movies. had series that have gone to air yet in your No, role? not yet. No, okay. it's really hard. Like I said, I've been more, since I've been there, focused on the movie. So now I'm working on a couple right now that, one that we're trying to put together a package to take out, another one's a pitch that we'll take out and, um, yeah, but before that, in my other job, we sold a couple but did not go to air. So it's a, it's a bit of a different world, but, you know, good materials. Yeah, good I'm material. curious if how the process is different with TV movies. It's, um, well, it's different depending on, <clears throat> like, this one project is a spec script. So it's always nice to have a spec script, but then the writers have also thought out, like, the next five years of the show. So they basically have a Bible, and I have to say, I read it, and I went, I want to see this show, you know? So, but when you take, uh, the series business too now is like they want a showrunner, someone who's done this before, who, but then some people like certain showrunners and some people like these showrunners. So same thing with attaching an actor. Well, what if this network doesn't like this actor? And so you, you have to be careful about it. So we're, we're in the process of trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. Maybe it's attaching, it's a great, female lead character, interesting dark material. I'm like, I'm looking at maybe attaching a great female director, you know, to take out as a part of the package. So, and then the interesting thing for me is there's so many outlets now for television. And that's good and bad. It used to be there were very specific seasons and you went and you pitched a few places and then, a, but it can go on and on and, and it's good. And, but everyone also thinks that it's this oh my God, everyone's got a ton of money. And even within our company, they'll be like, well, YouTube Red's doing this and they've got this and they go, but maybe they're spending all their money on that. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. And as Marvista finances and produces, it's, you know, where can we go where we can retain some international rights ideally? Or if that doesn't work this time around, will we still make the deal? So there are a lot of, um, a lot of things at play. Do you deal with advertisers at all or? Nope. Interesting. Um, so I'm curious, uh, sort of bigger picture, like what do you see as like the major changes in the industry landscape beyond what you've noted or what should students be aware of? I think, you know, it just really 
television is the the world right now where you can tell the best stories. Do I think that that you know people sometimes say, oh, the feature business is going to go away? I don't believe that the feature business is going to go away. I think going to a movie is a communal experience, and everyone still wants that. You know, let's all go see Wonder Woman. We can all talk about it. And but I do think that that's part of what's going on is people don't want to go spend twenty dollars to go see a movie unless it's an event. So it's bigger, better. That's what gets me to the movie theater. Now. I find also, though, um, binge watching in television is really interesting because it takes away the water cooler part of it. So everybody who's watching the next you know, season of Stranger Things, we might all be in different places. So you can't really talk to your friends about it until you know they've finished it. And when I'm like, especially on Netflix, I don't even know what episode I'm on. So I'm kind of like, well, where are you? Are you at that point where, oh, don't tell me what happened there. You know, whereas you used to have those water cooler shows, even the, like the Seinfelds of the world, and you, everyone would talk about them the next day. So I'm really curious about that, too. And the way they released The Handmaid's Tale was really interesting, which was just a couple of episodes at a time. Right. And that really seemed to build up this kind of water coolery, have you, have you caught up yet? And so, but like Netflix throws everything out there at one time now, and so... They're really, we'll see how that works. I mean, do things get lost? I can't keep track of how much TV is <laughs> now, you know? And yeah. people will start watching a show and they'll go, well, well, what's that one on, you know? And, but yet, and, you know, network television suffers because of, you know, the streaming and the cable, but yet This Is Us is a huge show. Right. And it's a very old-fashioned show, but it's told in an interesting way. And how did people find that show so well? So... I still think the cream rises to the top. Um, you just have to do your best to make good material. Yeah. That's a good point to pivot to maybe opening it up for the questions sure. for the students, if that's of cool. Uh, we have Annie back there lurking with the microphone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> like, I can't see people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I see a hand. Oh, hello. As a creative executive, um, what have you learned about it over your, the course of your career, and how do you approach managing creative pursuits and personalities? Because it's, I know it can kind of be very different from being a manager in, say, a shipping logistics company. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little more dramatic, maybe, or, you know, whatever you would term it. Well, that's why I joke about sometimes I said, that's why I need an assistant who I can sometimes go, come in here and slam the door and go, oh my gosh, this person's driving. But you, you have to all understand we're coming from the same place. I actually really love creative people and I still consider myself one, but managing and also producing is really interesting because I said, when you're on a set, you're putting all these personalities together who really often have nothing in common except that we're making a movie together, you know? And so you're trying to bridge that. And, and I mean, I am a little bit of a cheerleader where I try to inspire everybody to do their best. And I'm not always nice about it, but I am for the most part. And I think sometimes I'm less nice. And people go, no, 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 you're fine. But I'm, I'm tough. I expect a lot from people. But, you know, sometimes you do have to just take a couple deep breaths and walk, like, let somebody vent and say, you're ripping my, pro you know, you're ripping my movie apart, da, 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 and, you know, you're like, yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I, I hear you. I, you're absolutely right. And 
even, you know, I, I have some directors I work with and who, you know, at the end, they'll go, well, it's not the same cut that I delivered. And I go, you know what? But we made a really great movie because we did. And it's like you look back on what we went through from start to finish and you say, look at the end result. We got there and we have to kind of let a lot of that go. But it's a lot of, you know, personnel. I think being respectful is helpful and not treating writers like they don't matter or treating directors like they don't matter. And I believe from my experience working directly for a couple of directors who, I mean, and were not the Oscar level at the time when I was working with them, but listening to directors and watching what they're dealing with and knowing they've got a million things going on in their head and they've got it all in their head. So if you pull a thread, you know, they, you know, and I laugh, I said with, one director on a movie I was working with, and we worked together before, and I threw something out. We were trying to cut budget, but I was also, I'm not a line producer. I can't monetize things, but I can know what's gonna work, what might end up on the cutting room floor, because I've been doing this for a while. We shot this, it cost us a lot of money, and now we're not even using it. So we were looking at something in the script, and literally it was an eighth of a page. And but it was like Atlanta Burns, an eighth of a page. So <laughs> that's our joke, Atlanta Burns. And so you're like, okay. So I'm looking at it and I look at our more line producer and I go, if we decide not to build this tree and we just green screen them standing in front of the tree and looking up and then we get to the point where we're, they're across the tree, like we can do that, right? We don't need to build. And, and I said, we've already had this happen and that happen. It's time to get to the end of the movie. And he goes, yeah. So I say that to my director, and it's just a couple of us, and he kind of got, he goes, now you're, you know, you're just worried about budget, blah, blah, blah. And I go, not, but I, and he goes, you know, he said, he goes, I just, I just need to walk away from it. And I go, okay. So I said, I avoided him for about a half an hour. And I kid you not, because I know him too, and I know that he needed to think about it. I mean, he's shot listing in his head, and he knows exactly what this movie is going to look like in his head. I know a little bit, but honestly, that's not my job, and I don't want to, I don't want to do that job. I want people who know it. But I, I said every time I would like go to the bathroom or go to the kitchen, he was in his office in the door. And I would literally like not look in because I know. So about 20 minutes later, he came into my office and said, so tell me again what you're thinking about that. And I said, this is all I'm thinking. And I'm, I'm not trying. Yes, we need to cut budget, but I'm trying to be. And there was a thing that he really, really wanted in the movie that was costing a lot of money. And every time the producers would come to me and go, I think we should get rid of the, the real phone. And I go, he really wants the phone. So I'd say to him, and this is what I do. I go, I'm trying to protect your phone, OK? <laughs> and, 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 but it's a real give and take. And so he came in and he goes, OK, OK, I see what you're saying. And I think we can do that. And then I, so I grabbed my line producer and I said, OK, we're going to get rid of the, and it wasn't too late that it had started happening and whatever. And they came back to me and they said, that just saved us like $40,000, and I went, yeah, okay, <laughs> moving on, you know, and that's, but, but at the same time, like with him and other, I gave him his space because if I kept pounding him and saying, I'm right, and I'm the exec producer, at one point he said, he goes, you're my exec producer, and I, you're kind of my boss. I'm like, well, yes, but we're collaborating, and so I want him to have that, really, and we did know each other, so he also knew that I wasn't trying to pull all the threads and he needed to go in his office and he needed to make his little notes and really think about it and and come to his own decision on it and that's what happened so that's sort of my style
So, um, so working closely with networks on development, how different is your approach to selling TV movies from like the traditional way of like selling to like TV series? Well, it really depends on, you know, I try to tailor for what people are looking for. Series is much more wide open, so it's kind of nice in that way, but it's good and bad. Like I said to my colleague, Cindy knows Michael, like, oh, your job is the best because you can sell anywhere and sell anything. Well, guess what? That makes it harder because people are sending you everything and then you can go everywhere. So when it's the movies, I have a really direct, uh, when people bring me an idea, I'll go, I can't sell that anywhere. So, and it might be a really great idea, especially right now, like people submit you great true stories. I'm like, you know what? I can't sell this anywhere right now. But say a year from now, when Hallmark's drama network is up and running and they know what they want, then maybe I'll be able to sell that. But I'm very um, directed on the movie side because I know exactly who's buying TV movies and who is not. Series side, it's a little more open. Um, you talked about your relationship with William Goldman a little bit. I was wondering if you could just explain um, the best advice he ever gave you just because oh he's written such classic movies, both um, as a storyteller but also as a, on the business side. He is honestly one of my favorite people in the world. And um, I was lucky enough to, when I was at Castle Rock, he had kind of an unofficial deal with us. He did Hearts in Atlantis while I was there. He did... Um, Dreamcatcher while I was there, and he used to call every day, and I knew his voice where I could pick up the phone, and he'd say, can you give me blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I think Bill was just always a great supporter, and when I got promoted, one of the things he said to me is, which didn't really happen because he lives in New York, and but he was like, if you want to spitball ideas, and that was his exact word, if you want to spitball, you call me anytime, and we'll spitball ideas, and I was like, Okay, but he, Bill is one of those people that is, there are no bad questions or answers. And so I think that's one of the things, and we talked a little bit about this on the phone. I said, I've had writers come in for general meetings who say to me, why am I here? Like, what's the goal of this meeting after? I said, part of it is to see if we like, like each other and vibe creatively because you as a writer, director, producer, you're putting yourself out there. You're often sitting in the room with people for three or four hours. You'll get into telling real stories of things that happen in your life. You'll be like, you know what we can use? Because this happened to me, or this happened to my friend. And you end up really, so you'll, you have to be vulnerable because you'll throw out a really, okay, this is a really bad solution. But, so Bill was one of those people who was always willing to throw out the bad, and, and he, did you guys, I mean, a lot of you might have read Adventures in the Screen Trade, but then he did one called Which Lie Did I Tell? And the funny thing about that is that was when I was working at Castle Rock, and he sent these script pages out, like 30 pages, and he sent them to five different people. And one of them was my boss who didn't want it, but what he wanted was notes from his friends. And so, what he did, he didn't tell them what this was for. And so um, the writer, Tony Gilroy, who was you know, an amazing writer, and their friends. And so anyway, Martin at one point goes, read these pages. And I read them, and I was like, what is this? And we didn't do anything. But so the book comes out. 
and you see this experiment that Bill did where he sent these pages out to like the Farrelly brothers and Callie Corey and I think it was like John Paul Shanley or someone went, and then and Tony Gilroy. So they each gave him notes and they were all very different. And some of them were just like, Tony's were like, what the, you know, and, and I do that sometimes where no one can see those notes, but I'll be like, or I'll just circle and be like, mm. so Tony Gilroy called one day and I said, Tony, just remind me if I ever write a script not to give it to you. And he goes, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh my gosh, you saw Bill's book? He goes, he didn't tell any of us that he was doing that. So he really put himself out there and he did it as an experiment to show people that you're going to get five different reactions from So I think there's a willingness to put yourself out there and, and be vulnerable. And he was honestly just a very, he's always been a very supportive person. I also think one of the things I love about Bill is he always seems to have, have, have fun. And he would say something to me, and it would always end up with, he'd be like, well, did I ever tell you my Steve McQueen story? And I'd be like, nope, <laughs> tell it. You know, so that he's, and even in his books, he's willing to put himself out there and just say, we're all... There are no absolutes in this business, like I said. So he was just a great person. And I've been really lucky, though. I've had a lot of those great people. Um, and I was telling, I don't know if I told you this, but I told my niece one of my favorite things in Hollywood is that everyone wants your opinion. You're paid for your opinion. And as you get higher up, you're really, your opinion's valued. But especially at a lower level, everyone wants your opinion, especially if it validates theirs. So... <laughs> I mean, I, I, but I was okay with like with someone like Curtis would say, well, what do you think about that? And I go, I don't like it. And I go, well, I don't agree with you. And I go, and that's okay. And but I don't believe in being a yes man. You know, sometimes you're given something and you have to do it. And you're like, okay, but you have to be willing to, you know, go out on a limb and have an opinion. Um, I'm curious if you think there's other. Um, like certain misconceptions that people have as they're breaking into the business that you would want to correct. Well, here's what I will say, and I tell this to people all the time. Don't do it for the money because those days of people, I mean, the people who make that level, it's very different than it was. And my friends and I still joke about that point where we're like, gosh, we missed that day when people were making, you know, high six figures to sit in a desk with their feet up and read scripts all day. We're like, wow, we're out producing movies and we don't make that kind of money. So it's definitely, you have to do it because you love it. And I think that there's also this misconception that getting to that highest point is going to make you the happiest because I think you have to enjoy the journey that you go on. If you really want to make movies and television and you want to tell stories, there's so much to learn. There's so many great people around you. Don't go into it thinking you know everything because you went to film school, because believe me, you <laughs> don't. And that's not a bad thing because I'm still learning every day and I've been doing this for a long time. Things change, shift. You talk to creative people who do things differently. There's a new technology, there's something. And I think that's great because it keeps you, it keeps you engaged. I feel like if it starts getting boring to me, that's when it's time to get out. And, it's never boring. So, but I think the journey is just as important as where you get because I've had times where I've woken up going, oh my God, I wanted to do this and I'm waking up at four o'clock in the morning because I can't remember if we got that costume approved for tomorrow and like, this is really what I want to do. I haven't slept more than five hours and I'm getting up and it's 19 degrees outside and I can't feel my toes and okay, great. I'm so glad that this was my goal in life. 
<laughs> it's still, you know, I'm still happy. So when it's over, it, but there are days that you look, just look around you and go, this is what I wanted to do. And I laugh because my uncle is, said something funny to me years ago, and he's always been a supporter of mine, and he's like this Houston oil man who's traveled the world, and, you know, and, and he'll say something every now and then he says to me, he goes, you know, kid, he goes, you're, you're really lucky. Most people don't get to do what they love for a living, and you get paid for it, and that's what you do. So when I look at that, that's very, very true, and that's why you guys should all be getting into it. It can be done. I mean, I'm one of those people that I didn't. I didn't know anybody. I went to film school. I had a great reference letter from Mr. Foshko when I left, which actually really, I think, helped. It was, and you know, I could give it to people and say, but they didn't want to see my tapes of my shows that I had made or anything like that. They wanted to know that I could do the job that they were paying me for, and then you get in there, and then you let them get to know you and what you bring to the table. I, it's really hard when people are like cramming their short film down your throat, and you're like, I really need you to set my lunch. You know, I'm sorry, or I need you to read the script. So those relationships grow, and you have to give them a chance to grow because there's so many people who want to do this, but it can be done. You can make a career out of it. You don't have to be a producer, director, or writer either. You can be an editor. You can work in post-production. I mean, this affects a huge business now. There are so many things that you can do that allows you to be a part of the process of telling stories, and they're all important. That's a, that's a good way to end, although I have to ask my final question, okay. which is, what are you watching these days? Oh <laughs> I watch a lot of things. I do watch This Is Us. I've been watching Master of None. Um, I, gosh, what else? I still watch All the Dark. The next one is Mindhunter, which I want to. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. I love The Handmaid's Tale. Um, Law and Order SVU. I still watch Law and Order SVU. <laughs> and then what was the, um, oh my gosh, not The Man in the High Castle. What was the other one with Tom Huddleston? Oh, oh Night, Night Manager. Manager. I love The Night Manager. That was almost like, and I love The Night Of. And so I'm a little behind right now, but I have to say the comedies in the state of the world right now, <laughs> we're kind of wanting the comedies a little bit more. So, um, yeah. And I love this show called Episodes. If you guys yeah. haven't seen that show on Showtime and talk about a funny look at the business, but definitely exaggerated, but a it hits really close to home. It's, I think it's on Hulu, but it was a Showtime show with Matt LeBlanc, and it's really, really funny, and it'll make you go, oh, but it's dumb. So, <laughs> well, that, that seems appropriate, and thank you so much. That was great. Thanks for listening to Media Industry Conversations. For more information about upcoming speakers or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic or follow us on Twitter at rtfmic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with the assistance of Brett Siegel, Britta Hansen, and Annie Major. And the program was produced and edited by Kyle Rather. That's me. <laughs> this has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation. Oh,